Well, thank you, Don, and our worship team for leading us in communion. And what a wonderful part of the Christian worship celebration communion is, as we can just put our thoughts and reflections upon Christ and His suffering, and uh, really just appreciate how they led us this morning. One of my greatest joys in pastoral ministry is to develop and help build and lead a, an elder board and a pastoral staff. And this morning, as we get into 1 Timothy chapter 5, we come right to the point in verse 17 where Paul, in his letter to Timothy, is addressing the topic of elders. Now, you may not really know what an elder is, but an elder is a spiritual overseer and shepherd of the body of Christ. And this morning, as we look at 1 Timothy, by the way, our, we're passing out Bibles right now. If you'd like a Bible, just raise your hand. Um, we'll be sure to make sure you get one. I will put the text up on the screen as well. But um, also, you can, if you don't have a Bible at home, take it home as our gift to you as well. Uh, we'd love to give them out. But mention elders are spiritual overseers and they're shepherds. One thing, um, it's a good reminder to let people know, is that our, our pastors are elders, so the guys that you typically think of when you think of a pastor here at our church, um, we really are paid elders. Now, conversely, on the other side of that, the guys that you generally think of when you say the term elder, you're usually thinking about our elected lay elders who get elected each year to serve on the board. Um, you could also legitimately consider those guys unpaid pastors. Um, somehow we get the better end of that deal. But um, we are, as, as elders, we are the, past, the pastors, pastoral elders, and then the elected lay elders. We serve together as brothers in Christ, serving what we like to call a plurality of elders. Now, you might say to me, Pastor Bob, what in the world does plurality of elders mean? Well, just think of it that it just means shared leadership according to the biblical model. And that's how we like to lead the church here. Um, we really value the relationship we have with um, across pastors and elders. And the reason we're coming to elders again in chapter seven—I mean, chapter five, verse seventeen of this book of First Timothy—is because there were a lot of problems with the elders in the church of Ephesus. And Paul sent young Timothy to go to Ephesus to try and help straighten out the problems they were having on their elder board. But I'll tell you, when there's sin at the top, it filters down into the church family. And that was the case in Ephesus. So that's what we're looking at this morning as um, we get a chance to look into 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Before I read that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sacrifice as our Savior, Jesus Christ, came to this earth and died upon a cross, and as we celebrated communion just a moment ago, we were reflecting upon the suffering of our Savior, Jesus, and we thank you for that sacrifice. We thank you for reaching out to save us from our sins, to restore our broken relationship with you. Father, we thank you for loving us the way you do, and we look forward to celebrating that supper one day in the presence of Jesus himself. And Lord, as we get into the book of 1 Timothy, that Paul's letter to, to Timothy, we thank you for your inspiration of your word as you gave the words to the Apostle Paul to share that have such meaning for us today as well. 
And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and minds to teach us what you'd want us to learn this morning. Lord, I pray that we as a church would have a healthy leadership team. Father, that we would have a church that's spiritually healthy because we have leaders who are following Jesus Christ. Father, help us to learn from your word this morning as we study it together. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin by reading, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to read the first two verses, verses 17 and 18. I'll put them on the screen as well, but picking up in verse 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages." Now, as I was preparing this and knowing I was going to read this this morning, I kind of pictured having um, pastors Tom and John and Austin and Jeremy lined up in the back there shouting out, amen, and holding up signs, we want raises. (laughs) But um, they controlled themselves. They didn't do so. And, um, you know, I I want to just share, um, sadly, some stories from around the country. Um, When I go out to pastors' conferences and just interacting a lot with pastors around the country, It's sad that you hear some really sad stories about how pastors are treated by their churches back home. It's almost like some of these churches look at it like their mission is to keep the pastors poor and humble so they never have to struggle with the temptation of money. And, you know, thankfully, what I want to say for Riverstone Church, this church is not one of those churches. You know, I'll speak for myself. Janet and I are so thankful for the graciousness of Riverstone Church. And we are also so very thankful and gracious for the, grateful for the leaders of our church who serve alongside of us as brothers in Christ and really value one another in our relationships. So I want to say thank you because otherwise it would have been really awkward to stand up here and preach this passage if I felt like one of those oxen who was being muzzled. Now, that's not the case, so we can put that aside. And um, I want to just share a little bit. In verse 18, we see here that, that Paul was referring to the oxen who were muzzled. Um, Tom touched on this, I think, about, probably about a month or so ago. Um, in case you weren't here, just to give you a little illustration, what he's talking about is in the first century, they would use oxen to just thresh the grain. So what would happen is they would come in and they would take the husks, which were really tough, coarse on the outside, and they would have like this hard-packed floor with generally usually like a post in the middle, and then they would have a tether tied to that post, and that was tied to the ox. And the ox would go round and round and round in a circle, and they would put usually like a sled on the back of the ox with weighted weights on it, so that as that sled was going over top of those husks, it would break up the husks and separate the grain from the husk. And what would end up happening, and then they would go in and be able to gather all of the grain. And what they encouraged, and let's just say the nice thing to do, was to allow the oxen to go around and around and eat the grain as they were working. But sadly, just like today, there were selfish landowners who got into the habit of putting a muzzle on the ox, so while the ox was working, he wasn't able to eat any of the grain. And as I said, it would be really difficult to stand up here had we felt in that camp, but that is not the case 
But what we're getting here is a warning from the Apostle Paul telling churches that your elders, especially this says those who preach and teach, is what he says in, um, in verse 17, are worthy of an honor and basically saying, compensate them respectfully and with appreciation. So as we get on, we see that there's this value that's attributed to the spiritual leaders of the church, those who are preaching and teaching the Word of God. So what I'm going to do is I want to put on the screen the first statement. And what this morning, I'm going to give you four statements pertaining to elders. All four of them are word for word right out of the text. And the first one we see here says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now, I already talked about the compensation financially, but as well, churches are to extend honor to the elders, but notice that Paul doesn't say across the board all of the elders. What does he say? Well, if you look at the text, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor. Now, there's a double message. There's two, really two messages coming out of this statement that I gave you about let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. There's a message that Paul is sending to the elders, and he's saying, those of you who rule well. He's sending a message to the church family saying, for those who are ruling well, consider them worthy. Now, Paul is breaking down and doing this, this elders in Ephesus, and actually throughout time, into two different camps. And what we're going to see is that there are elders who rule well and are worthy of honor. And sadly, there's going to be the other camp of elders who are not following the Spirit of God. They're serving out of the flesh. And we will see a little later, it's these elders that need to be rebuked. So we see that there's two camps that are going on here. And I want to encourage us. The role of an elder is not easy. You see, I, I serve as a full-time pastor here at the church, and I serve alongside of guys that I love dearly who have full-time careers. They have families. They have outside responsibilities, and they are giving their time generously and sacrificially to lead this church for Jesus Christ, and it is not an easy task. You see, elders, when we think about what they do, elders teach they pray and they serve so our people, so all of us in this room here today may know Jesus Christ more intimately, obey him more faithfully, and reflect his character more clearly. That's the role of an elder. They're giving of themselves, they're sacrificing of themselves for the spiritual well-being of the body of Jesus Christ. Now as we move on, our second statement that Paul gives us about elders is found in verses 19 to 21. Let me read these verses. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. I'd love to camp on these three verses for quite a while this morning, but in light of time, I'm not going to be able to cover them too much. 
But what I would like to say is that shepherding God's people is a joy, but it's also not an easy task. Um, to be in Christian leadership is to be on the receiving end of all kinds of allegations and accusations. It's just the way it is, and I'm going to explain that in a moment. But Christian leadership is not an easy task. And the Apostle Paul realized this because he sent this young Timothy to confront these elders that are in Ephesus, and Paul knew that it was not going to be an easy thing, but he also knew that some of these elders needed to be rebuked. But at the same time, he recognized that some of these men were faithfully following the Lord. And Paul gave some parameters on what that should look like as an elder is accused or rebuked. A charge is brought against an elder. So, our second point, we just read it, is do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, picture the role of an elder. You have to at times address and confront people who are living in sin. Have you ever gone to someone who's living in sin and shine the truth of the gospel upon their life? Now, do 100% of the time, do they just embrace you and thank you with all kind of warm fuzzies? No. Um, hopefully they do. Hopefully they see the, the sin and they're willing to repent. But many, many times, when you shine the light of God's word into the darkness of sin, the response and the reaction you get is not one of warmth. So what we see here is that Paul is saying, listen, there's going to be instances where people are going to be upset with an elder. Do not, says, do not receive an accusation except on the basis of two or three witnesses. You see, we're not the first generation to face this. It was happening back in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, and it's happened all through time. And there was a Puritan pastor who hundreds of years ago, his name was John Trapp, and he wrote this statement on this topic. He said, Every fool has an arrow to shoot at a faithful preacher. Now, there's a lot of truth to that statement. See, when you're preaching the Word of God in all of it, in integrity and truth, you're going to receive some shots. He also wrote this statement. It seems truth hath always a scratched face. Now, when you're willing, as a man of God, to confront sin, to confront error, to just a wayward person, you're not going to be re received with love all the time. And that's what he meant here when he says, truth hath always a scratched face. See, our world is a darkened world, darkened by sin, living for people pursuing their own personal pleasures. Those sins come into the church. And when an elder shines the light of the gospel, the truth of God's word, under the situation... There's going to be times where they're going to receive accusations. There's going to be times where it creates, creates disunity within the body. But they're called on to do this faithfully. Now, as we go through this, one of the things that I have noticed is for, for elders, you know, they confront sin. They settle disputes. I've seen times where an elder has to go in and there's person A is upset with person B. And neither of them are going to be happy unless you side with A or B. And maybe the elders have to say, listen, maybe you're, not, you're both not in the right place. It's a difficult place to be. I want to caution us. One of the things that I've seen, because every church that I've been in, in 25 years of ministry, 
Um, I've been on the elder level at two churches, serving as a pastor at three. All of those instances, we have had to bring an elder forward for church discipline. But I've also seen it where godly men who are using biblical standards and approaching situations with love have been on the receiving end of some pretty horrible accusations. Do you remember, the, remember Whisper Down the Lane? What happens when all of a sudden something happens, and this happens in the church, you hear one thing over here, it gets told to another person, told to another person, on down the lane, and by the time it gets down here, the story that's being told is so far from the truth from what happened when it was first taking place way down here. And that happens in churches. And one of the personal applications I want to give us today is that if you hear that whisper down the lane, the first thing that you should do as a disciple of Jesus Christ is to say, wait a minute, you're telling me this? Have you talked to so-and-so? Have you talked to Elder Harry? You know, and send them back to the source and remind them, listen, by you sharing that with me, you're gossiping. And secondly, what ends up happening is, as whisper down the lane takes place, person A, B, C, D is hearing different stories and it's shaking their confidence in the leaders of the church who were pursuing godly action on behalf of the church. So if you ever have that question, you yourself go to an elder and say, listen, Elder Harry, this is what I heard. Can you, I, I, need, I just need to talk to you about it. Because the board was not going to want your confidence to be shaken in the leadership of the church. So obviously what Paul's seeing here is he's talking to Timothy. He says, listen, Timothy, you're going into a really nasty situation. There is just a lot of unrest in the church. And the bottom line is the elder board, the board of the elders in the church in Ephesus was a real train wreck. Um, I, as in hindsight, looking back at what took place in Ephesus, you had elders who were requiring, they themselves, to certain topics. One of the examples was the food laws of the Old Testament that was restricting people from eating certain foods. And these elders said, nope, we're going to adhere to that. And they were requiring the church family as well to restrict themselves from certain foods that the New Testament had already given the liberty for Christians to partake in. And what in essence they're saying is, you need to believe the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but you also need to do this and this. And the food loss was just one of them. But sadly, these very same elders were abusing alcohol within the church to the point of excessive drunkenness. And now Paul is having Timothy go in and address the sins of these elders. One other thing that they believe was taking place in the church because of some extra biblical sources and hints in here, but it's not black and white, so I don't want to say it as if it was black and white, but they believe that these elders who were sinning were also taking advantage sexually of the young widows in the church. Do you remember last week we preached on the first half of chapter 5 and the whole section was about widows? They believe that that's one of the reasons that that was in there, and Paul addressed particularly about the young widows. Now, whether or not that was taking place within that church, what we see was that there was grievous sin taking place in the church of Ephesus, and Paul realized, Peter, I mean, Timothy, you're going into this context 
Some of these men are faithfully following the Lord and they're worthy of honor, but some of them are not, and they need to be rebuked. And what Paul's giving here is some guidelines on what that looks like. So the first one we saw was not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, as we go further, I want to jump to Matthew 18 for a moment. Because anytime sin is confronted in the church, you can't just look at one verse or one passage in isolation. You want to look to see what the whole context of Scripture as a whole says about it. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 are some of the most specific verses related to church discipline and to confronting sin within the church. Let me read these three verses. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or, take one or two more witnesses with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. You see, um, in Matthew 18, we're seeing some pretty clear guidelines on how we confront sin. And it applies to elders, and it's perfectly compatible with what Paul is showing us in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you believe there's sin that needs to be confronted, the first thing you do is you go privately to the brother or sister who's in sin. And it, the goal of church discipline, it's not punitive. It's always corrective discipline. So your hope is that when they hear it in private, the person's going to repent. You see, if you want reconciliation, the first thing that has to happen is repentance. So if you go and confront the sin and the person repents and they, they turn themselves back to the Lord, the church discipline is over. So you now have reconciled and restored the broken relationships and you brought the person away from sin. But what ends up happening next, it says, if, however, you go and you talk to them in private and they continue in that sin, now that sin needs to be made public. And what we see in verse 20, which I had just read, it says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. It always follows the private confrontation of sin, and then it goes to being public. Now, one of the things that at the end of that section I read says here, um, in, verse, um, in verse 20, it says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I mentioned the church discipline is always corrective. Its goal is to have repentance and reconciliation and restoration. But it's also so that those who are witnessing it will refrain and not desire to enter into sin themselves. So one of the things of church discipline is, one of the benefits or any of the things that's why we're guided to it is so that the church itself We'll see the sin, we'll see how it's handled, and we'll be motivated internally to not step into sin themselves. So we see now some of the guidelines here related to church discipline. At this point in time, I mentioned earlier that at each of the churches that I served in, 
we had to bring an elder forward for church discipline. You know, the last church I was at, it was a painful time. It happened to be the chairman of the elders. And in each and every instance that I was part of, it was brought forward for sexual sin. Do you know how damaging it is when sin takes place on the leadership level of the church? It is damaging to the person in the sin. It's damaging to families. It's damaging to the church body. And it's damaging to the witness of Jesus Christ beyond the church and the community as well. And I want to encourage all of us, what can be a personal takeaway that we can take from this this morning? As a church family, I'm going to ask you to pray. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your elders. Pray for protection against unfounded accusations. They're going to receive them. They need your prayer. Pray for their purity in the face of temptation. We, we value your prayers. Pray that we can serve the Lord and the church family as elders worthy of honor. That is the greatest thing that you could do for your church leaders is to be praying for us, and we would really appreciate it. As we move on, I want to move on to verse 22, and we'll see the fourth statement. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. What we see here is Paul is talking to Timothy about the commissioning of new elders. The fourth statement says, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. And what Paul was really affirming here was, Timothy, before you place somebody in a position of leadership, know who they are and know their heart. And it's critical. One of the things that we do when we, when we look for elders, just last week, if you were here last week, we distributed our autumn newsletter that presented two guys, Matt Moyer and Shidju Jacob, as elder candidates to be voted on in just a few weeks at our annual meeting. If you weren't here, we distributed a newsletter, and there's an insert in the middle of it with the bios of these men. Um, it's called Autumn Newsletter. It's in the literature rack in the lobby. If you didn't get one last week, it also lists a lot of activities and ministry events coming up here at the church. So if you didn't get one, get one on your way out. But we're presenting Matt and Shidju forward as elder candidates to be voted on. We went through a thorough vetting process of these guys before we put them up for election for the church family. Matter of fact, we give out two tests. One of them is from our denomination, the EFCA, and it's called a Doctrine and Lifestyle Survey. I think it's about 200 questions long. Uh, we gave them another one on leadership that had to do with character, um, their biblical competencies. And we then sit down and we review these with these guys. Now, that's something that we take really seriously. Now, as we go through, though, in 1 Timothy, as we get to the last two verses, you'll notice I'm going to skip verse 23. We'll come back to it. I want to read verses 24 and 25 because it talks a little bit more about selecting people for leadership. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. See what Paul's telling us here is, for those who are serving in the flesh, Timothy, it, their fruit is going to become evident over time. Their sin will rise up. For those who are men following after Jesus Christ, 
They're serving in the Spirit of God. They're surrendered to Jesus Christ. They're committed to following Christ's headship. Timothy, over time, the good deeds are going to flow out of those people as well. Give it some time to see the fruit in the lives of these individuals. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't lay hands. Don't appoint somebody to eldership too hastily. You know, the same thing is true in all of the ministries of our church. You know, when it comes to finding children, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, whatever the position of leadership is within the church, we want people who are serving out of a genuine devotion to Jesus Christ. We, want, we don't want people who are serving for selfish desires, and over time, the fruit of their nature is going to show itself over time. That's how we find leaders within the church. Now, one of the things we also want to say is when it comes to finding leaders, we're not looking for sinless saints. You see, if we were looking for sinless saints, we'd have mutiny downstairs because we'd have all of our classroom, we'd have 25 kids in each room without a teacher in any of them because there's no sinless saints in our church. We wouldn't have an elder board and you guys wouldn't even have a pastoral staff because we're all sinners. But you see, what we're looking for is people that are completely devoted to Christ and allowing their hearts to be transformed by the gospel so that they're conforming to the image of Christ day after day and year after year. That's what spiritual leadership looks like. So, if somebody were to say to me, Bob, how do you guys really choose elders other than looking at the biblical qualifications, which we saw in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? I would say that we follow the smell test. You might say, well, what is the smell test? Well, we are looking for people that before they are ever appointed to be elders, they smell like sheep. Now, you might say, smell like sheep. And by the way, some of our guys are better at it than others. But, um, only kidding. But um, you might say, well, what do you mean by smell like sheep? Well, what is the main priority of an elder? It's to tend and to shepherd God's people like a shepherd tends his flock. And you see, we're looking for people that are investing themselves into the lives of God's sheep on a regular basis. And if they're doing that without the title of elder, they're the men that we want to put on the elder board. You see, if people as well, if people are investing themselves into the lives of people, they're willing to get dirty. They're willing to smell like the sheep because when marriages are broken, they're willing to step in. When they see people caught up in sin, they're willing to confront. When they see people struggling with addictions, they're willing to come alongside of them. When they see somebody out of work and struggling, they're willing to get involved in their lives. See, that's what it means to tend the flock. And that's what I mean by smelling like sheep. They're investing themselves into the lives of people without the title so when they become an elder, they're fitting the biblical model of what God's looking for in a shepherd. I know a number of years ago, I think it was probably like seven or eight years ago, I shared this illustration from the pulpit. It comes from a book called The Trellis and the Vine. It does a, the book does a wonderful job talking about leadership within the body of Christ. And it gives you illustration in the first chapter of a garden. And in the garden, there's two trellises. One of those trellises, it's beautiful. This, the paint job is just perfect. It's sparkling. It's white. It looks fantastic. But the problem is there's nothing growing on it. 
And the second trellis in the garden, it's old, it's grayed, it's weathered, it looks just, it's ugly, needs a paint job. But you know what? There's this vine that's just nourishing and just overwhelming this trellis and it's just growing. And you see, that vine represents gospel ministry. It represents the kind of ministry where lives are being transformed by the gospel. People are coming to faith in Christ. People are practicing gospel repentance in their lives. And the vine is just, is just flourishing. You see the trellis? The trellis represents the structures of the church. They're necessary. You can't not have them. But it's our budget. It's the Constitution. It's our policies. And it's ironic I say this after the last year and a half around here. It's the building. It's a trellis. That's all it is. Those structures are meant to support the vine. You see, we could have the most amazing structure in the country and be a dead church with nothing growing on it. You see what God wants us to do? He wants us to be a church that is growing vines. And we went, when we put people into leadership positions, we want to think of them as vine growers. And that's what we're looking for. So as you look through Scripture, you see clearly that God cares about the heart. You look at verse 25, and it talks about, even 24, the sins of some are quite evident going before them. You know, not everyone. We can be deceived. God knows the heart. But what we want to do is, as leaders in our church, is to see the fruit of our people to be able to judge their capabilities and, and readiness for spiritual leadership within the body. You notice I skipped over verse 23. Let's go back and touch on verse 23 as we close. Verse 23, no longer drink wine exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Um, water, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, we just read a whole section on elders and if you're like me, you come to this verse and say, why in the world is that in there? It doesn't seem to fit. It's almost like Paul, just like, you know, his pen's going along. And, oh, by the way, Timothy, drink a little wine. And then he gets back to his point. I think the reason that that's in there is because Paul and Timothy realized alcohol was a major problem in the church in Ephesus. And these elders were drinking. And apparently, Timothy, the younger pastor, younger elder, was having stomach problems um, I had actually had like a, a chemist come up to me after the first service and said, Bob, do you know why that is? It's because wine and the alcohol actually stimulates the gastric juices and it's actually really good for digestion. I'm like, great, I'll use that in the second service. <laughs> but um, see, I think what happened was Timothy got to the point where he was saying, man, the elders are receiving these accusations. They're drinking to excess the elders themselves. I am going to just give up any wine just to avoid any possible accusation. And Paul was reminding him, saying, Timothy, listen. He said, you as a Christian have the liberty to drink wine. It's okay. For your health reasons, you need it. Now, I have heard people use this verse kind of like as the proof text saying, see, the Bible says you can drink alcohol. Please do not use that verse as a proof text for drinking. I'm going to talk just briefly about alcohol, how we can present it. I know Tom touched on this because it's come up a couple times because it was a problem in Ephesus. But 
whenever, well, not every time, but usually when alcohol is referenced in the, in the New Testament, what we find is that drinking to excess, drunkenness, is a sin. It's a clear sin. You cannot look at the Bible and walk away saying, no, the Bible says it's okay to be drunk. It doesn't. It's a sin. However, you can't also say that the Bible condemns alcohol because the Bible does not say alcohol is a sin. But in churches, you can see abuses. I'll give you an example. I was a, when I was a pastor in Doylestown, um, two polar opposite situations. One Sunday I was preaching, and in my sermon I said that drunkenness is a sin, but alcohol is not necessarily a sin. Well, there was a pastor who was visiting from out of town, who was retired, probably about 50 years older than I was, and he was visiting that Sunday, and when the sermon was over, he came up, and he chewed me out. And I'm like, wow, I know where he stands on alcohol. Um, for him, it was a sin. One Sunday, same church, we had these um, get, like, kind of welcome lunches once a month. We had a big gym. It was nice because while the worship service was going on, they could prepare a lunch in the gym, and we would have like gatherings for lunch one Sunday a month to connect people at the church. And I was sitting there with this new family. It was a younger couple. And I mentioned to him, I said, so what's brought you to the church? And the guy, man, without missing a beat, goes, we're here because we heard you can drink in this church. Wow, really? Um, so, to tell you, both of these positions to me are in dangerous areas. Now, when it comes to drinking, what I want to warn us is, the Bible always tells us that drunkenness is a sin. You know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, let the Holy Spirit be the only thing that influences your words and behaviors, not alcohol. See, the, the name of Jesus Christ, the reputation of Jesus Christ is at stake. If you can't claim to be a believer in Jesus and you're drinking to the point where you don't know what you're saying, it's not, your words and actions are not under your own control, I think you've crossed the line to where the Bible calls it sin. However, the Bible doesn't condemn drinking in, in its complete, you know, completeness. What I want to say is your choice to drink alcohol in a controlled way or just to enjoy a glass of wine or a beer or whatever is a personal conviction. And there are people that make personal choices, convictions, for really good reasons. Maybe you come from a home where you had an alcoholic parent. Maybe you have an alcoholic spouse. Maybe, you know, for health reasons, you can't drink. Whatever it may be, and you choose, you know what, I'm just not going to drink. Praise God for your conviction. And I, what I want to encourage, if anyone else in our church chooses to drink, never stand in judgment against somebody else's personal conviction not to. Now, if you're on the camp that you choose not to drink and somebody else is not getting drunk, but they choose to have a glass of beer or a glass of wine or whatever it may be, don't stand in judgment against them for their personal conviction. See, what we all have to make sure of is that we are representing Jesus Christ well, we're using the Bible as our source of authority, and that we are living as disciples of Jesus Christ, and our witness in the community matters. You see, we don't want to be, you know what, personally, I mean, I, I would encourage you too, if you know somebody has a real problem with drinking, or they've had a, you know, a bad experience because of a loved one or whatever, 
and you choose to drink, be willing not to drink when you're with them. You see, never be a stumbling block for someone else. That's what Christian charity is all about, and that's what not abusing our liberty is all about. I kind of went off a little bit here on a side tangent on alcohol. I want to wrap up this morning and just say this. You have a church leadership board made up of godly men who need your prayers, and they need your respect. They're sacrificing personal time to love you, to lead this church, and hopefully follow Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd as they choose to, as they lead and shepherd our church. I also want to encourage any leaders who are here, whether you're an elder or another leader in the church, and that is to, to live your lives with purity. Remember, your choices have an impact upon the name of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ. And choose to live in purity. And I want to encourage all of us, when I gave the illustration, whether it's about the trellis and us being a vine-growing church, or my challenge to the elders is to smell like sheep, let, you know what, let's be an entire church family that smells like sheep. See, we can make a big difference in the community if that were true. If they look at our church and they say, wow, you know what, they just love people. If they see you at work and they say, man, he or she, they just are willing to come alongside. They do so with love. They're just, whenever somebody has a need, if somebody is struggling with an addiction, if somebody's hurting, if somebody's marriage is breaking up, he or she is always there. See, that's what Jesus Christ did. And that's what it means to really love people as Christ loves his sheep. So let's be a church that that vine is just flourishing. We're on the other side of our building project. We have the classroom space. In about two weeks, these classrooms are going to be filled Wednesday nights, Sunday nights, Sunday morning, throughout the week. You know, um, Riverstone Preschool Moms is kicking off. Bible studies, how people change, it's kicking off. Let us be a church that is passionately growing vines and doing gospel ministry for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the challenging words that you've given to leaders in 1 Timothy 5 this morning. Father, I pray that our leaders would follow you, surrender themselves to you, and Lord, that our church would shine like a light for Jesus Christ as we are loving people as you love us. Father, change our hearts, all of us. Lord, we are sinners. We confess it. And I pray that we would be more faithful in confessing our sins and repenting daily. Lord, transform us and help us to be the kind of church that you want us to be. Amen.